0: hi I'm Robin, one of the digital social media editors for Heart Asia and today we're delighted to be joined by Christian Lee who has recently published an note in Heart Asia, a paper on CA125 and its link to heart failure. Christian, can you tell us a little bit more about um, uh, your research group and uh, um, we'll start off with the questions.
1: Right. Hi, Uh, my name is Christian. I'm one of the fifth year medical students in Newcastle University. It's, It's an incredible pleasure to be part of this interview. So, yeah, uh, on top of being a medical student in Newcastle, I'm also an off-site clinical researcher at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And that's where I get a lot of my collaborations and a lot of my research work gets done. And I work with my professor, uh, Professor Gary Z, and he has collaborators in Spain as well. And that's why we're getting involved uh, with Professor Julio as well with regards to this paper. That's great. Okay,
0: so if we move on to the paper itself, Um, Can you explain the pathophysiology behind CA125 and its role in acute heart failure?
1: I think many of us will know that CA125 is classically used as a tumour biomarker for ovarian cancer, but we also know from studies that has been done more than ten years ago, that CA125 is really not that specific a marker to begin with. It's been found to be increased in many conditions, uh, many conditions like hepatic cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, even in pancreatic cancer. And we know this because CA125 can be produced by salamic epithelial cells in places like the pleura and as well as the pericardium. And I think this really ties in with the existing data, which states that under conditions of increased hydrostatic pressures, mechanical stress, and even cytokine network activation caused by acute heart failure, they can potentially trigger CA125 secretion from mesothelial cells. That's why with this meta-analysis, we believe ca five can be a useful tool for stratification ratification for high-risk patients with more severe fluid overload. Yeah.
0: Okay, that's, that's that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so as you say, CA125 was originally used uh, in its role as a biomarker for ovarian malignancy. And it has a lot of history and research behind this. But as you say, it's not completely specific. So what is the sort of sensitivity and specificity in acute heart failure and CA125? Uh,
1: yes, I, I think this is a very good question. But From the context of this meta-analysis, I'm afraid I won't be able to give you the specific numbers, but there are certainly a lack of essential data such as uh, false positive and negative rates reported by studies, which makes the meta-analysis of predictive power quite difficult. But if I were to hazard a guess based on the general non-specific nature of CA125, I think it would be similar to its use in ovarian cancer, where it's good for ruling out but not ruling in which is reflective of high sensitivity and relatively low specificity. But that being said, one of the papers that we used in our our meta-analysis did obtain a sensitivity and specificity of around 96% when a threshold of 48 units per mil were used. But yes, in short, there isn't quite enough sufficient data to report the exact numbers.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, and as you say, our readers may be more familiar with NT-PRO-BNP, st 2 or even troponin as a biomarker in heart failure. How does CA-125 compare with
1: something more familiar like NT-PRO-BNP? Um, yes, definitely. I, I completely agree. That was pretty much what I was taught in medical school as well. I, I guess important. I, I guess it's important to clarify that we are not trying to replace Uh, pro-BMP as a biomarker, but perhaps potentially for CA125 to be used synergistically with BMP. This is especially pertinent following a study published by one of my senior supervisors, uh, Professor Julia from Spain. He found that with regard to all-cost mortality prediction, BMP and CA125 were equally effective. My professor also found CA125 to be able to provide a more temporal perspective for better risk uh, discrimination Okay. which is not reflected by BMP, yeah. And with regards to this course, I think it varies between countries. And in the UK specifically, I think my understanding is both are kind of around the same price at around £20, but I might be completely wrong. Okay, right. So it's cost effective. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So
0: pr- you, you mentioned Professor Julian Nunez, one of your co-authors, and he's known for other papers such as Chance HF and uh, other papers related to CA125 and acute heart failure. And also CA125 and acute heart failure and cardiorenal syndrome. Mm-hmm. Can you explain some of the subgroup outcomes you found in your meta-analysis for heart failure admission versus heart failure mortality and the predictive power of CA125? Yeah,
1: I think it's good that this paper is been brought up. I mean, especially since it's also what led to the conception of this meta-analysis in the first place. So I think it's important for all of us to understand that in his multi-centred randomized study, the patients were basically assigned into either the CA-125 guided treatment group or the standard of care group following an admission for acute heart failure. And the primary outcomes of that paper were one-year all-cause mortality as well as readmission for acute heart failure. And in the active arm, the protocol suggested an increase in the intensity of clinical monitoring and diuretic therapy in patients with persistently high levels of CA125, and accordingly, patients allocated to the CA125 guided therapy showed greater diuretic doses modifications as well. It was then subsequently found that the CA125 guided strategy was associated with a significant reduction on the risk of death as well as readmission. But I guess one of the interesting aspects to take note from that study is that most of the benefit stems from the reduction of the risk of recurrent HF admission. This strategy did not show a reduction in the risk of all-cause mortality uh, mortality when evaluated as a separate endpoint. And my professor also found these results to be homogenous across most of the important subgroups, such as even in age, gender, renal failure, like you said. And with regards to safety issues, the CA-125 guided strategy was not associated with higher risk of renal dysfunction or electrolyte disorders compared to standard of care. In terms of looking forward, recently, my professor did tell us that we have the results of a new randomised trial evaluating the effect of a CA1-5 diuretic guided therapy in patients with acute heart failure and renal dysfunction at presentation. From that, we believe the current evidence definitely endorses the role of CA1-5 to as a reliable marker for congestion or even as a use for tailoring diuretic therapy in patients with heart failure. Okay, that's, that's very good to know.
0: So going back to the meta-analysis, there were some 16 studies that were included, about 8,000 patients, where the mean age was around 71, and approximately half were male. Uh, and I think we documented 48% had some form of left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Yep. In those studies, the mean cutoff was 48 uh, units per mil, and some of the single-centre studies have used 35 units per mil you alluded to where the 48 unit threshold came from. Can you just um, reiterate that for us, please?
1: Yes, I guess uh, initially I think it's important for us to clarify what left ventricular systolic dysfunction actually means. And in the context of this meta-analysis, we defined it as having an injection fraction of less than 0.4. And now moving on to the cutoff, yes, there are definitely a few studies that use the cutoff of 35 units per mil. But we have to take into account that there are other papers with higher and even lower say 1 to 5 thresholds that were used. And after taking into account the different sample sizes in each of the included papers, the mean cutoff of 70, uh, 47.7 is mathematically correct. And I think it's more reflective of the entire meta analysis cohort. I guess with the more commonly known threshold of 35 units per mil, we have to appreciate that it came about within the context of ovarian cancer. With acute heart failure, I would like to point to one of the included studies in our meta-analysis by Hakikaya, who used a threshold of 48 units per mil. And with this threshold, they obtained a specificity and sensitivity of 95.8% and 96% respectively. So I guess in the end, I, I think we really have to look at the context in which CA125 is being applied to. Okay, that's
0: great. Thanks for clarifying that point. So if, if I'm kind of a day-to-day cardiologist and I'm interested yeah. in CA125 and my lab also has anti-proBNP, what's the mm-hmm. day-to-day role for CA125 and my heart failure team? How, how do we use it? You said it was synergistic.
1: Yes, uh I think when it comes to its clinical application, we think ca 125 can either be used alone or like you said, it can be used synergistically with BMP for re- stratification. And the thing the good thing about C125 is that it can be used for stratification, uh, stratification on multiple fronts. That's been illustrated by this meta-analysis. So things like all because mortality, readmission, and even congestive severity. But more specifically on its practical utility, I think the proof that has been established by Professor Giulio in his chance AF study is the most appropriate since it's been tried and tested. So what he does is that you can measure a single point CA125 on discharge along with another subsequent reading if the patient is re admitted for acute heart failure just to give everyone a more temporal perspective which, which we can't do with just BMP alone. Okay,
0: so then if, if somebody has a, a particular value of ca one to 5 on discharge and then they are readmitted, do you yep. use the, the, tra- the trajectory of, of those two values to assess, to, 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 to do risk prognosis?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of the difference. It's like the dispersion of the ca one to 5 that can basically give us a more temporal perspective. Yes. When this was actually done by uh, Professor Julia with BMP, they didn't really see any significance, any uh, statistical significance when they used that same method for BMP. So with BMP, it was good at one point and as a single point uh, discrimination and on discharge. But CA125 is also useful as a single point measure on discharge. But the good thing about CA125 is that it gives you a more temporal perspective because if the patient were to come back with acute heart failure again, that additional reading of CA125 and the difference from the two different time points, what can give you another more basically clearer uh, perspective of the person's risk.
0: Okay, so you uh, mentioned earlier that CA125 is synthesized in other epithelial sites, such as the pleura, the peritoneum, or the pericardium. This is tempting for a cardiologist then. Could it have a role in predicting outcomes or readmissions in acute or chronic pericardial effusion pericardial disease, or even temporal. Yeah,
1: yeah that's, that's really quite interesting. Yeah, I, d- I definitely see where you're coming from. If we were to bring things back to first principles, it, it makes complete sense for CA125 to have a role in those conditions. In fact, I believe there have been studies that has been done as early as the 1990s showing high levels of CA1 to 5 to be associated with larger pericardial infusions and even risk of recurrent infusions. But to be very honest, I really don't have an in-depth knowledge on pericardial infusions. But since they are caused by similar mechanisms of increased hydrostatic pressure, I can see how one can see that relationship. But before, like you said, it's quite tempting. And before we jump on this idea, I think it's worth having a look at the interplay between other contributing factors such as cytokine network activation and mechanical stress within the context of pericardial effusion. But yes, it's, it's definitely a good thought. Great, perhaps then for a future study.
0: Then what are the advantages of CA125 compared to
1: NT Pro BNP in a nutshell? Mm, based on the current meta-analysis along with studies done by my professor, I guess CA125 is able to provide predictive value across multiple outcomes like I've mentioned before, such as things like all-cause mortality, readmission, and congestive severity. Also, it has been shown to give a more temporal spe- uh, perspective like I've mentioned when compared to things like pro-BMP. In terms of its cost, I think, yeah, it depends on the country like uh, I've mentioned before. Some places, it did say that BMP can cost up to 10 times more than CA1 to 5, but in the UK, I think it's fairly similar. And in terms of using CA125, uh, if there's a raised CA125, there is, there is a 50% increased risk of cosmetatic re admission Okay, great.
0: And in terms of the CA125 assay itself, is it standardized? Are the units standardized across different assays?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of standardized to uh, units per mil. Okay, great. And
0: of course, the flavor of the month in cardiology now is we have not only heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but we now have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and also another flavor of of mid-range ejection fraction. Do you think CA125 has a role in diastolic heart failure or what we call heart failure with preserved ejection
1: fraction? Oh yes, Uh, I think this is a fairly similar question about this kind of similar to what we talked before about CA125 and pericardial fusion. I personally think it's highly dependent on the part of physiological disease process of those conditions. From my basic understanding of diastolic heart failure, I can see how the retrograde pressure from the increased feeling resistance in diastolic heart failure can cause both mechanical stress and increased hydrostatic pressure, which subsequently lead to CA125 secretion. And looking at some of the studies that we included, comparisons were made between patients with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction and patients with preserved ejection fraction. But based on my knowledge alone, I, I don't think much has been done within that subgroup as of yet. But, theoretic, uh, but theoretically, I, I can see their role in diastole, uh, diastolic heart failure for sure. Okay, so I guess the key word there is it hasn't been
0: done yet, but it sounds like it's a fertile ground for future research. Yes. Great, okay. Now, some of my research interest stems into um, cancer patients with cardio. Mm-hmm. So, kind of a day to day question if I have a 55 year old female patient with acute decompensated heart failure and a high CA125 uh, without a pre existing diagnosis of cancer, do I need to exclude mm-hmm. ovarian malignancy
1: via the usual tests? Hmm. <laughs> It's a bit of a case study, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I I think this is a difficult question to answer based on what we have, just based on a, a bit of vignette that you have given me. Like In the end, even though the patient seems to have the demographic parameters to raise my suspicions, I think a proper differential workup is still a necessary part of the process. I mean, for example, if the patient also has things like Weight loss, a strong family history of birth mutation, bleeding after intercourse, IBS-like symptoms, or if their serial CA125 reading is persistently high after acute heart failure, yeah, after the acute heart failure has been resolved, then yes, I believe a proper follow-up according to ovarian cancer screening guidelines is appropriate. But for the sake of simplicity. If the patient came in with acute decompensated heart failure with no significant stigmata of ovarian cancer, then I don't believe it's necessary. But as a whole, it really depends on guidelines since they are different everywhere.
0: Okay, so it sounds like it's, it's not quite ready for uh, uh, rule out or screening on a large scale per se, but we still have to mm. reserve our
1: usual clinical acumen on a case-by-case basis. Of course. I think it kind of boils down to CA125 being, like like we mentioned before, like even within the context of ovarian cancer, it's not very that specific. It's still just, it's very sensitive, so it's good for ruling it out, but it's not really good for ruling in because there are multiple causes for race CA125. Great.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Any final words for our readership?
1: Well, this is definitely... A good starting point. I mean, with with this meta-analysis, we basically uh, confirm from multiple studies, up to 16 studies, that CA125 is is definitely a good marker, which is comparable to uh, pro-BMP in terms of uh, predicting all cause mortality, readmission. But the good thing about CA125 is that it's able to kind of bring in additional parameters such as the congestive severity of the patient, especially when they have fluid overload. And I guess the best way to look forward with CA125 is how we can basically integrate this marker into diuretic care for patients with uh, uh, fluid problems uh, within the context of heart failure.
0: Great. So it sounds like it's, it's an exciting tool going forward. And it has some advantages over NT Pro BNP, including serial measurements and prognostication. Yep. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. very much. And many thanks to you and your research group. We'll, we'll be signing off now, but remember to like us on Twitter and to follow us on Facebook as well. And for Heart Asia, thank you very much. And we'll be talking to our readership again soon.